Jillian and I had been married about two years, and she was pregnant with our first child. And we'd gone through the whole process. We'd, we'd bought the crib, the stroller, high chair supplies, and the baby's room was all prepared. And then added to that, we'd gone through Lamaze classes. Do they even have those anymore? We, st we still went through them, you know, and you learn the breathing techniques of this whole process and how to recognize when it was the time to get to the hospital. So we kind of felt ready. And, and so it was in the middle of night of October 6th that Jillian woke me up from a dead sleep and said, I think the contractions are coming pretty quickly. So I knew what to do. I got the timer out to time how far apart her contractions were in, in my great fogginess. And after the second contraction, I, I looked at the timer, did the math, and said, they're four minutes apart. You're fine. And I turned over to go to sleep. <laughs> Thankfully, Jillian was more alert than I was and said, it's time. <laughs> and if you're not familiar with birth, that indeed was the time. In fact, it was past the time, really. And, and here's the thing that still strikes me about this. I, I was prepared. I was equipped. I, I, I really, I was anticipating it. I, I was. And I still didn't recognize the time. As you might imagine, that story gets brought up, retold periodically in our home. Enhanced, I would say. And I think all you husbands say, I get it. Easy mistake to make, right? It wasn't like there was a ref there telling you it was a two-minute warning, right? I know. Well, in the passage we're looking at today, we are looking at an event that was planned and anticipated, not for months, or even for several years, but for 2,000 years, it had been foretold, described, awaited. 2,000 years. And even so, the people missed that the time, the person they had longed for, had finally arrived. They missed it. Today we're moving into a new teaching series in our continued study of the book of Acts that we're just calling a transformed way of living in, in which we will see that life with Jesus, life empowered by his spirit, doesn't just lead to kind of a, a change of certain convictions or just a shift in religious actions, but it leads by the spirit to a transformation of the way we live life. So if you would, open your Bibles to the book of Acts, and chapter two is where we're gonna be looking and reading today. And, and just to do a bit of review, to, to remind you of where we've been in this, the lead into our passage a preceding it was this empowerment that came on Pentecost of God's people, the church really, where the Holy Spirit came as a gift to them, indwelling them incredibly. And it was an empowerment that came specifically for witnessing about Jesus. It was an empowerment for the Great Commission. It was an empowerment for the harvesting of souls. And we noticed in recent weeks that that Spirit's coming in empowerment came with three signs in particular. And, and, and for one, it was signs and wonders. As it came on Pentecost, when there was a sound like a rushing wind, there were tongues like a fire over people. Secondly, one of the additional signs was the empowerment of these common Galileans, followers of Jesus, who became, started to proclaim the mighty works of God in languages they'd never even learned. And then the third sign was this. It was marked by biblical preaching. As Peter stepped up, and with a great crowd observing all that was taking place, he lifted his voice and said, Men of Judea, 
That leads into our passage today. And as we looked at recently, two weeks ago, we looked at the first part of Peter's speech or sermon. And today we're going to look at the second part of that sermon, and we're going to look particularly at three elements of the sermon and story in this portion of the book of Acts. Three elements I want us to catch, all right? So let's start with the first element I want to make sure we see. And we simply say this, I want you to catch the declaration. The declaration. Now, now just again, a bit of background on this. When, when we first started looking at the first part of Peter's sermon two weeks ago, if you recall, Peter starts the sermon. Remember how he starts? By referring to the prophet Joel. And he tells the crowd around him, what you are seeing right now, it's what Joel talked about centuries ago in his prophecy. He pointed to the prophet Joel. So, so be aware, we need to remember and realize this. When Peter quoted the prophet Joel, the response of the crowds in that day, 2,000 years ago, would have been very different than how we respond to hearing Joel quoted today. I mean, because they knew that passage. I mean, for us, most of us now, we spend our time mostly in Scripture in the New Testament, right? Not solely, but mostly. But in that day, all they had were the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, and they knew the scriptures, that they knew it. They would have been steeped in this prophecy. So when Peter said to that crowd, to these first century Jews, and linked what was happening on that day, these signs and wonders going on, these languages, his sermon even, and linked that with the prophecy of Joel, the crowd around him knew this guy Peter is claiming that the day has arrived. He's claiming it's time that the messianic age has begun that Joel spoke about, that the Messiah, our, de our deliverer in some way has come. And you can kind of guess, I would imagine, that the heart of a Jew, even though not knowing certainly where Peter was headed, their heart would have leapt a bit, I think. Could this actually be the time? Hey, could it actually be arrived? You know what's interesting? Many Jews today have actually given up the hope of a person being the Messiah. Really, many Jews in our day would now say that the Messiah has come, but it's not a person. The Messiah, they would say, it's kind of an analogy, that it's, it's an age or an epoch of time, the time right now when Israel has regained their homeland. This is the Messianic age, they would say. They're not looking for a person, tragically. That was very different 2,000 years ago. They were looking for a person. They were looking for the Messiah that the prophet spoke of, a, a person who, like Joel said, would be a savior, a deliverer, a military leader, and would bring Israel to glory in some way in a messianic age. And Peter says, the time has come. At the end of the first section we looked at, Acts 2.21, remember, Peter said, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now for us here, now in our day, when we hear that title, the Lord, what do we think of? Yeah, we think of Jesus, right? That's not who they would have thought of. It, it, the word is Adonai, or the, the old word they used for that was for the Lord. It was a name or title they gave simply to the God of Israel, to Yahweh, who was the Lord, Adonai. And so when Peter referred to the Lord to them, what came to mind for them was the God of Israel, and potentially his deliverer who would be sent to deliver Israel. So know this, at this point in the sermon, Peter would have at least had their attention. 
signs, wonders, strange languages being spoken, and then the linking with Joel, he had them listening. And I think along with the intrigue they might have felt with that moment, I would imagine they also had a profound question. Because coming right out of Peter's statement there, that those who call in the name of the Lord will be saved, right after that statement, I would imagine their minds would have gone to this question. So who is this Lord? Who are you saying, Peter? Who are you claiming the messenger from God is? What's his name? And Peter gives them the answer in our passage today, beginning in verse 22. And friends, this is the word of God. And Peter declared to the crowd, men of Israel, hear these words. It's Jesus of Nazareth. So who's this Lord? Who's this deliverer, people, Peter? I mean, who are you claiming him to be? Peter says simply, it's, it's Jesus the Nazarene. And here's my guess. As you try to imagine that scene, I, I think as Peter made that declaration, likely in that crowd came up a great, audible groan. That's my guess. That Nazarene, oh, you gotta be kidding. This Jesus, the crucified one, that's who you're saying? I mean, note this, many of the individuals there in that crowd that day would have also been there 53 days earlier during the Passover season. They would have been around when Jesus' crucifixion took place. And, and so their minds likely would have gone to the thoughts of, we know about this Jesus. We, I thought we got rid of him, we crucified him. King, give me a break. Seriously, Peter? And Peter continues in the passage by saying this, about this Jesus, verse 22, yes, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, how? With mighty works, wonders, and signs that God did through him in your midst. You saw it, as you yourselves know. He was ministering around you for three years. This Jesus, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, referring to the Roman forces. And God raised him up. You killed him, God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Go down to verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted the right hand of God now, and having received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he's poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing, these signs and wonders, these languages you know. And verse 36, so, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, the one you crucified. Whoa. You know, I want us to see in, in, in these verses, for, for one, I want us to catch this, that I think what we have in these verses, for one, is really a model for all New Testament preaching. I mean, it's preaching, you can guess it, and you hear it clearly here, it's preaching that is focused on lifting up, simply, this Jesus. Peter simply preaches Jesus, right? That is it. And it's intriguing that the Apostle Paul, as he began his ministry, he followed the exact same pattern. Look at what Paul expressed in his letter to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified, Peter said. Paul said, sorry. A stumbling block to Jews, folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greek, Christ is the power of God, and he's the wisdom of God. 
We preach Jesus. We seek here to follow this pattern. Think, think about this, really, we're attempting to follow the pattern of Peter and Paul in this, to simply preach this Jesus. And, and, and don't miss this in the passage as we continue on in it. Did, did you notice the title that Peter first uses to describe this man Jesus? It's kind of interesting to this great Jewish crowd, Peter doesn't use some of the grand or loaded titles for the Messiah from the prophets. He, he doesn't describe Jesus as a son of God or the son of man or the Christ, the, the anointed one. But Peter begins by describing Jesus how? Simply by his place of birth. He calls him Jesus of Nazareth. Now understand this, at best in that time, at best, that was a common title for Jesus. At its worst, that was a title of mockery and derision. Think about this. Jesus, some of Jesus' main opponents were the Pharisees. One of the main titles they used for Jesus was the one from Nazareth, the one up there from Galilee. And in fact, you remember in John 7, 52, it says the Pharisees replied to all this, search and see, no prophet ever comes from Galilee. <laughs> up there by Nazareth, you kidding me? And it wasn't just the Pharisees. Do you remember when Jesus started calling his own disciples? Nathaniel, remember how Nathaniel responded kind of strangely? Nathaniel responds to the invitation to follow Jesus by saying simply this. Do you remember in John 1, 46, Nathaniel said, can, can anything good come out of Nazareth? <laughs> That's one of Jesus' future disciples. I mean, Nazareth was a butt of jokes. So when Jesus hung on the cross, the sign above him therefore read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Yeah, right, king from Nazareth. <laughs> Good one, as if. <laughs> so it seems on that first day of Pentecost, as Peter begins preaching to this Jewish crowd, he uses this term of derision intentionally. It's like he's wanting to draw the contrast between the image these people have of Jesus and Jesus' actual divine and kingly identity. Oh, you remember that Nazarene? Yeah, the, the one crucified 53 days ago, remember him? Remember, you remember the scene? And again, much of that crowd would have been there 53 days earlier. They had heard the scene. So, so remember, remember the game that the soldiers played with him? You remember what took place? They put a robe on him. Remember that, how they did it? Took this crown of thorns, smashed it into his head, took like a stick and gave it to him to be a scepter. And then they, remember they took it away and started beating him with him? Remember how that took place? Some kind of king that was, right? Who lets himself be beaten by his own scepter? What a joke. And, and then remember how they began to shove him around and, and started hitting him, blindfolded him, started spitting in his face. And remember they say, hey, prophesy to us. Which one of you hit? Which one of us hit you, Jesus? A Nazarene. Know this, public opinion of Jesus in that day clearly was this, that he was inferior, he was loser, he was irrelevant, he was impotent, he was a fool. And certainly he was no kind of king. So as, among other things, as Peter began the sermon, he would have pricked the ears of his listener as he declared, you rejected him, but God affirmed him. I mean, you killed him, but God himself lifted him up. You despised him, God exalted him. You tried destroying him, and God made him Lord in Christ. You are on the wrong end of this deal, people. So our first element I want us to see is this declaration. 
And then the second element in this story as it unfolds, just catch this, I just want you to notice the crowd. Notice the crowd. You know, just as we've seen the importance of the name that Peter uses, I want us also, in order to catch kind of the power of the interaction that's going on here, to, to notice the audience to whom Peter speaks. And we say, okay, who is this audience? Remind ourselves of this. Look, look at Acts 2, verse 22. Peter addresses them. He says, men of Israel. So simply say they are people of Israel. Well, who are they? Well, go back to verse 5. Verse 5 describes them. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem. They were Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So who is G the crowd here? It was devout Jewish men from every nation under heaven. You know what that means? It, it means Peter is preaching here to people who are deeply committed to God. Get that picture. These people were devout. They, they were pious. They'd come on pilgrimage for the festival from every nation under heaven. That was a significant, costly journey in those days. They took their faith seriously, and they had a sense, in their own minds at least, of who God was. And, and to that, when, when we think of that, I th think we tend to say, well, that'd be a good thing, wouldn't it, at least? I mean, a great crowd gathered in Jerusalem, de devout in their faith to God. And in, in their case, it was the God of Israel they worshiped, the same God we worship. But we could also look at it from this perspective. I think you know that if a poll was done in the world in our own day, most people of our own day would also say they believe in God. In, in fact, in polls regularly done by Gallup and Angus Reid, they, they still find that 67% of Canadians say they believe in or have a faith in God. And we ask, well, well are they devout though? Well, that would be a smaller number. It was 42% of those polls who say that their faith in God has a very important role in their life. But we still say, well, that's still 42%, not bad. And, and additionally, the faith of some of those is described as being renewed. In fact, a Globe and Mail article on a, describes a segment of Canadians who they, they say are returning to church. And, and then it describes some of the churches that are regaining adherence. And as you read it, what it mainly described was focused on style, sentimentality, and kind of feel-good, no-offense messages. Where they get, one pastor described himself, said, we seek to give the quick Bible, where the unhappy or difficult passages of scriptures are kind of dropped away so we can be an uplifting community. In another article on the growth in the church, church consultants noted that a minister's accountability now in our day is less about his or her faithfulness to scripture and more about whether people keep coming and people keep giving. So the aim of pastors, therefore, can often start to become what gets people coming and what keeps them giving. And I don't know if your mind goes to Paul's words to that young pastor, Timothy. Remember what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy? These words to this young pastor seeking to lead the body of Christ. Paul writes to him, 2 Timothy, in chapter 4 and verse 3, these words. For the time is coming, Timothy, pastor. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Another pastor put it this way. What we want people to leave with at our church 
is a smile and a handshake. And, and let me be clear on this. I, I, truly, I, I hope, I, I truly, I hope deeply that when you come here, especially if you're a newcomer among us, that by the time you leave here, you, you will receive a smile with somebody, a, a warmth from somebody, and that you will receive a handshake. I mean, part of the reason we welcome one another past the peace of Christ is we want each one of us, every time we gather in all our places, to be both welcomed by somebody and, and receive a blessing from one another. And, and we want to be a welcoming community. I, I think that is a good thing. I think that actually reflects the heart of God. But I'll add this. If you leave one of our gathering places with nothing more than a smile or a handshake, if you don't leave with some sense of, of having been in the presence of God or, or at least hearing some truth about the majesty and glory of the invitation of Jesus Nazarene, you essentially leave here with nothing, friends. Nothing. If all you want is a smile and handshake, go to Walmart. They do it better than us. But, but our priority as we gather has to be this. The reality that there is a source of authentic transformation in life. And it's not smiles, it's not handshakes, it's not platitudes, it's not style. It is Jesus who is Lord in Christ. It's him. And, and so here's Peter in this passage speaking to a group who thought of themselves as knowing God. And this is what he says to them in essence. You claim to know God. You men of Israel, you devout ones from every nation, you pilgrims, but you've rejected, ignored, and denied Jesus of Nazarene. And I'm here to tell you this, if you don't know Jesus of Nazareth, you do not know God. This is Peter's first sermon. Imagine what the rest were like. I, I think you could imagine how to a devout Jew, that would have been an incredibly offensive statement, right? I mean, to a Jew in 2014, that would be an incredibly offensive statement. But really, that's an offensive statement to most people in our day, not just to our Jewish friends. I mean, you might, you might even hear that and think, Clyde. I mean, I, I, ca I came to this church because I thought we'd be a bit more broad-minded here. Just kind of have more of a cosmopolitan view and just could have more contemporary sensitivities. I mean, that, that sounds irritatingly narrow. I mean, in more, our more enlightened age, I mean, we need to be aware that there are many ways to get to be and devoted to God. I mean, really, are we that out of touch? I mean, I admire Jesus also, but let's realize there are other pathways to the God that we worship. If that's on your heart, friends, I'd say this. Or disagree with me or, or disagree with us about whether Jesus is the only way to God. But never wonder about what the Bible says about this. Don't, don't wonder. This is what Peter says. Look at Acts 4 and verse 11. This Jesus, there it is again. This Jesus is a stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in whom? No one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So friends, don't be surprised. We, we seek to. We preach Jesus as our only hope. 
And, and this wasn't just Peter, Jesus himself. Do you remember Jesus himself in John chapter eight? He was speaking to people who believed in God, who believed they knew God, who actually were trying to honor God in some kind of way, at least in their minds. They were the Pharisees. And, and they were the ones who at that time, these Pharisees were saying, God is our father. Remember what Jesus said to them? L look at this, listen to this. John chapter eight, verse 42, listen. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you'd love me. For I came from God and I am here. I am the Christ. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. Now we know who modeled preaching for Peter, right? And Jesus also said those words in John 14. Understand this, I am the way, I, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus' own words. And we understand that Jesus is the watershed. It's Jesus, yeah, that Nazarene, can you imagine? The victim of the cross. So this group, a group that, who thought they knew God, Peter goes on to say, so let me tell you what God thinks about this Jesus of Nazarene. And that leads to our third element that I just want to touch on. The third element of this passage, and we'll just call it the Father's affirmation. And notice the Father's affirmation. Look at verse 22, back in Acts 2. Jesus of Nazareth, Peter says, who is a man attested you by God. Peter declaring that this Jesus really was, he's approved by God, he's endorsed by God, he's affirmed by God. And in this passage, I want to see at least two of the ways that the God of heaven himself affirms, attests to the identity of Jesus as a son. How does God do that? Notice this in verse 22 again. It says this, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested you by God, how? With mighty works, wonders, and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. So we ask the question, how did the God of heaven affirm, approve of Jesus' identity as the one, the Messiah? For one, through Jesus' mighty works, wonders, and signs, right? I mean, think of this crowd that was watching, listening to Peter in the sermon. They just watched the Pentecost events. They just heard the sound of wind. They just seen these tongues like a fire and people speaking in, in their own languages who had never learned them. And Peter's saying to this group, you think that's amazing. Remember what Jesus did in your midst? Do you remember? You've seen Jesus around. You saw him heal the blind, the lame, the demonically possessed. You saw him, you observed the uproar he caused at his healings. The Pharisees opposing him because he healed individuals. You saw that. You saw Jesus raise a dead man, Lazarus, from the grave. You know Jesus isn't like this Pentecost wind. He was like a hurricane from God. So understand this. When you saw his works, you saw the wonders and signs around Jesus, it was God himself shouting, that's the one. It's him. Do not miss my son. And not only did God affirm him through this Jesus' works and wonders and sign, but also God also declared who he was through this. Look again at verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So how else did God affirm Jesus as the Messiah? Think of this. By delivering him up to the cross. And to that we ask, 
How does that work? God endorsed him by delivering him up to die? I hope he never takes a shine to me. I mean, how does that fit? But, but understand that the prophet centuries before it declared that the one to come would suffer. He would walk through this. In fact, Jesus himself, do you remember Jesus' words uh, back in Luke 24? Jesus said this, Luke 24 and verse 46. Jesus said to the crowds, for it is written, it's in scripture, that the Christ should suffer. And on the third day, he'll rise from the dead. He's gonna suffer, he's gonna die. And we ask, where is that written in the scripture? One of the places would be this. We turn to the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 53. Do you remember these words? Beautiful words, again, written centuries before Jesus' birth. Isaiah 53, three. He was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Surely he's borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, our sins. But understand this as well. By his wounds, what? We are healed. And, and then look down at verse 10. These shocking words that Isaiah proclaimed. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was God's pleasure, some translations say, to crush him. He, God, has put him to grief. And we say, why, why would the father put his son to the grief? Again, jump back to Luke 24, and Jesus himself makes the declaration, verse 47. Jesus said, so that repentance and forgiveness of sins should proclaim in his name to all nations, beginning with, boom, Jerusalem. Right there in Pentecost. So Peter declaring this group. So understand this, men of Israel, you devout ones. This Jesus, he was delivered up to the cross. And understand this, as he was delivered up to die, God was literally declaring in that act, this is my son, he is a lamb. How do, did God affirm Jesus as Messiah? For one, through his works, his wonders, and the signs. And, and secondly, by delivering him up to the cross. So what do we do with all this? Can I give you two encouragements? For, for, for one, I, I, I just think it's so interesting that, that Peter doesn't close the sermon by saying, and, and if you trust in Jesus, you'll have health and wealth, you'll have clear saying in life, you'll, you'll have fewer problems if you will just trust Jesus. He doesn't say that, you know why? Because <laughs> it's not part of the promise. Well, what does Peter say? Simply, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, this Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And friends, if Jesus truly if it is, Jesus is Lord and Christ, my response to that reality can only be to bow down to worship him. So can I give you one encouragement? If you're here today, and if you've, if you've never taken that step of, of bending your knee to Jesus in essence, of turning him in faith, of confessing your brokenness, your sinfulness to him, receiving his forgiveness, can I encourage you, invite you to do that? Even if it's in a silent prayer, just call out to God, even right now, and say, I acknowledge my fallenness. I, I want the forgiveness Jesus provided through his work on the cross. And would you fill me with your spirit, and, and I seek to follow Jesus. And, and you can then come to this table of communion as a new child of God.
Or if you're here and you've already turned in faith to Jesus, if you're a follower of him, I'd, I'd just ask this. Would you say in your life that you are bowing to Jesus? Just this past Thursday morning after our elders' prayer time in the morning, I uh, drove out to our Walden property uh, knowing that later that afternoon we'd have our hearing before the CPC about our development permit. And when I got to the property, the sun hadn't come up yet, and there were, there were actually graders already working on the land, kind of smoothing out the dirt, preparing for possible development. <laughs> so I just walked along the property for a while, just watching, praying, and then the sky was going from dark to kind of glimmers of light, and just there praying, oh, gee, Father, could, could you use us, even through this place, to, to, to lead others to Jesus, to make him known? And, and then just left the property and, and, and started driving and really it was kind of more meandering uh, through Walden and, and then really up into Chaparral around and Sundance and over into the streets of Mindapur. Uh, and then jumped over to Shaughnessy through the, some neighborhoods there and down to Bridalwood along the way and, and into Evergreen. And, and just really along the way, praying over just some of these neighborhoods from, from which we come, where, where we live. And, and again, asking if God might use us to reach these communities with the wonderful name of Jesus. And it, it, does, it, it hits you just physically seeing these hundreds, thousands of homes where you know that likely most of them really don't know Jesus. And then just praying, oh, Father, would you lead them to your son? And at, at that point, I was kind of pulled over at a curbside in Evergreen and just praying, and while I was praying, I just felt this prompting or, or leading, I, I felt like it was from God, just, just kind of prompting, saying, get out of your car and kneel on the ground and pray for these communities. And I've had those kind of promptings before. I mean, it's not a common thing, but uh, so I looked around. <laughs> and then got out of the car, and I just went over to the grass nearby and, and just knelt and started praying. <laughs> Father, and lead these uh, homes, these, the, uh, these people, these families, our neighbors, to, to long for even, to, to bow down to Jesus. You know, and I, I don't think physical kneeling is a requirement by any means. It just was prompt to do it. But just while I was kneeling there and, and praying, just felt another prompting. Again, it wasn't an audible voice, but just I felt like it was God saying, okay, Klein, bow down prostrate and pray for these people. So then I really looked around. Because it wasn't a quiet street I was on. I was 162nd Avenue. Uh, and, and I knew, okay, if I lay down here, there's a very good chance someone's going to run because run, I think I had a heart attack or something like that. But I just, okay. So I just bowed down flat out. Just faced on the ground and prayed, oh, Father, lead our communities, our, our friends, to, to bow down to your son. And then a gentle voice just saying, okay, Clyde. Are, are you bowed down to me? You fully submitted to me. And then laying down there in the grass in 167 Avenue, I, I knew, no, I'm not. I, I resist you, Jesus. I know I do. I, I know at times I ignore you because I don't like the way you're prompting me. Oh, forgive me, Lord. I just, would you lead me? Would you empower me by your spirit? So I just turn that question to you, friends. 
Would you say you are bowing down to Jesus with your life? If that's what we seek for our city, it, it needs to begin with us, doesn't it? So in, in this moment, in the presence of God, with, with Christ's spirit with us here, I invite you to respond to him, even in your prayers. And, and let this coming to this table be an expression of that. As we come, and together in these gathering places, we break this bread, the body of Christ broken for you. And, and, and then in community, as we lift the cup, I wish we could all drink from one cup. <laughs> I, and remember, the blood of Christ poured out for you. So let me lead us in prayer. And let this stepping forward to receive this meal not be a ritual, but, but be a feeding for us. Well, we both remember what he has done as we've reflected on God's word today and then receive from him in this meal. Amen? So let me lead us in prayer. So Father, we come again praying. Lead us to bend the knee to your son. And, and we do so even in this gift of coming to this table, praying that you would feed us with him by your grace as we take bread and cup together in community, even in these gathering places, uh, seeking to be ones who by your grace and through your spirit would lead others to know the grace you've extended in your son. Oh Lord, hear our prayer. And again, all God's people say, amen.